What's up, NBA fans? After a short pause here in the, with the boycotts in the NBA, we were all just in suspense on what would happen exactly with the NBA and the players. And I guess luckily for the fans, the game came back and there were still questions on what kind of game we'd actually get back with the players in the mood to, to really finish out these playoffs and man did they come and really not disappoint NBA fans we got ourselves heck of a heck of a set of games to close out some series some great performances and the NBA is back after two days after boycotts um, and I'm glad to see some basketball come back Sean I know you are as well oh man Alan I'm so excited and I, honestly it was a lot shorter than we expected which I'm really stoked about too. Um, I was thinking we might have had to wait weeks. Maybe the season ended. Uh, we had no idea where we were going to be um, after the last podcast we did, but I'm glad that where we're at today with the changes they made and then the promises that the owners made to the players that um, they're going to do a lot more um, to help out their causes. And uh, a lot of change happened, honestly, in a short amount of time, which is really cool. And then we actually get NBA action and Boy, did we get some NBA action over this last week, man. These were some amazing games. Yeah. Yeah, and I'm pretty excited to dive into those and, and really break them down and which ones are our favorites. Uh, but yeah, I mean, the set of actions, the players were able to get some form of uh, promises, commitments from owners in the NBA. I think the big thing that came out of it was some NBA arenas are now open for voter writ to as election centers, places for people to vote in, so... That's great. I think it's great because so many of these arenas are also technically publicly owned and public mm-hmm. dollars were used to build them. So great to see <laughs> them finally sense. be used. <laughs> yeah, I'm glad to see them being used for pro- for public use. But, you know, that's a that's a hefty topic for another time. But I mean, let's dive right into things that have been going on. I mean, this morning, some pretty big news for the Brooklyn Nets, Sean, and you and I were texting back and forth on our reactions to this, but Steve Nash hired as the new head coach of the Brooklyn Nets. Wow. An interesting pick, you know, another point guard who, who gets a first dibs at head coaching with no experience on a, to on a very great team, at least with great pieces, you know, other, other names being Jason Kidd and uh, Derek Fisher. Uh, but Steve Nash really coming out of left field to get this job. I, I am stunned, and I <laughs> don't really like it to be honest. But and I think and it's and I think Steve Nash could one day become a successful coach. I think he has that in his personality, um, and he's the type of guy who really had to, you know, really work for it. Nothing, not many athletic gifts on his side. So he was ex- he was an extraordinary floor general and a guy who knows the game very well and played it for a long time. However, to give him this much responsibility with a team with this heavy of expectations. I'm really questioning this move, but Sean, let me know what you think here. I mean, I got to be with you on this. I think you're pretty foolish if you don't think that this is a really risky move. This guy, like you said, has no coaching experience, not even assistant level. The the closest that he's gotten to coaching is he was a consultant for the Warriors when Durant was on the team, which is like... That's pretty much like what Jerry West does for the Clippers. He consults, you know. I'm sure Steve Nash was just there to, to be around the players and, and to give them some sage words of wisdom. That's not coaching. And you talk about guys that he was going up against that have a lot of coaching experience, championship coaching experience too, like Tyron Lue. Uh, you got Jason Kidd was probably in the running. Mark Jackson, a very well-known name in NBA circles. 
and and even Jacques Vaughn, who was the interim head coach this year, has experience with the players, and they actually they did retain him as the lead assistant, which I did think was cool. They did kind of give him what he is due at least, because they made him the highest paid assistant in the league, and he gets to stay with the Nets team. They obviously love him, but I I really would have loved to see what Steve Nash's interview was like with this team because. This is really crazy because this team with Kevin Durant, Kyrie Irving, you're going to have superstar hotheads. And maybe that's the angle that they have with it is that this guy has been on teams with other all-stars and he knows how to handle players with heavy egos. Uh, And maybe that's the angle that they're going with. Although I don't know what that looks like from a coaching perspective. I can see that from like a big brother perspective. It's like, oh, I respect Steve Nash. But do I trust him to run an out of bounds play with three seconds left with no timeouts? Like I don't know. Like that's there's just those little intangible things that you, as a coach, you have to draw up. I he has no experience doing. Yeah, and we have nothing to go off to see how well he can do in those situations. And I mean, to the point of making Jack Vaughn a high, the highest paid assistant. Why not just make him the head coach and just <laughs> and put some high quality assistants around him? I, I don't know. I don't. I just don't really understand this. the The way they they took this yeah. angle, I'd really be interested in hearing an official statement and some more thoughts from the Nets owner from the Nets basketball group and what they're thinking here. Perhaps the relationship with Kevin Durant was had a lot to do here, and, or maybe the point guard guidance he could give Kyrie Irving was huge as well, because. Um, I find it hard to really come up with like big significant points that Steve Nash brings to the table that other coaching candidates might not. Yeah, I can see with Jack Vaughn from the perspective of he is an amazing coach for a developing team like the Nets kind of were in the form that they were this year without Kyrie, without Kevin Durant, with a lot of scrappy young dudes that just want to play basketball together and get better and improve and work with each other. I can see Jacques Vaughn being a great head coach for that type of team, but I do feel like with his inexperience too, they probably felt like he wasn't the best coach for a Kevin Durant, Kyrie Irving-led team. Now, does that mean I think Steve Nash is that guy? I still don't know. And it's hard for me to say anyone that doesn't have like a large pedigree in the NBA already is going to be the right fit for this Nets team. Like I think Mark Jackson would have been a better fit, in my opinion. I think Ty Lue would have been a better fit. But we'll just have to see. It's going to be very interesting to see how this team starts out. But it, in my opinion, just knee-jerk reaction, I don't think Steve Nash is the right guy. Um, but I'm going to be very interested to see what happens. Yeah, this will be interesting to see how it plays out and well, I just I feel like these these I mean, obviously there's like Nick Nurse, first time mm-hmm. head coach, wins the championship, and you got Steve Kerr. But obviously I think these guys are the exception rather than the rule. Um so <laughs> we'll see how it plays out. Maybe yeah. Steve Nash is another guy added to that list. Yeah, it's very true, but man, I just wonder if they at least like tried to reach out to Greg Popovich or something before they reached out to Steve Nash <laughs> and they're like, it's just got a rejection, so Let's let's uh, throw a shot in the dark and, and hope it sticks. Yeah, I wonder if Jason Kidd made it an attempt to try to go back go back there as well. Maybe they couldn't even get a proper interview with him because he's in the bubble. <laughs> Probably, yeah. Yeah, so switching gears here, though, some awards did go out just within the last couple of days. And Brandon Ingram, no surprise, I think, for me, 
wins most improved player of the year. I mean, that's, I don't really think there was much competition in this category, Sean. I mean, some I guess there were some names you could have thrown in there. Yeah, yeah there were some names. Like, I mean, you got to give credit to Bam at a bio in, in Miami. Demonte Sabonis for the Pacers. Mm-hmm. Devontae Graham, I think, Devontae is a name Graham. that pops up for sure. Um, but, yeah, I, I agree with you. Brandon Ingram definitely did deserve this. Was the front runner for most of the year. Improved his points per game, five and a half points from last year, up to 23.8 points a game this year, which I never would have guessed. Like, I thought at best he was a 21-point guy, but he's just he shot the lights out, man. From three-point, he shot 33% last year, up to 39. And then the big story for him, I think, was the free throw percentage, up from 67% on the Lakers to 85%. I don't understand that, man. I don't understand. Like, the free throw thing on the Lakers has been a problem for the for a good four years now. If <laughs> the group comes in and out, and the free throw shooting just does not improve. And Brandon Ingram <laughs> and those boys all got better as soon as they left the Lakers. I'm not sure what's going on. 67 to 85, like, that makes a lot of sense. That's like eighty five. Yeah, 85 is where an NBA player like of Brandon Ingram's caliber should be at. 67 is like, that's below average. Like That's, that's LeBron okay. James status right there. <laughs> yeah, I mean, LeBron has had some good years where he shoots like closer to 80%. and But now he's he's at that 67%. And the Lakers <laughs> as a team are shooting like low 70s. So. so bad. I don't even a great it, Anthony, but... Anthony Davis has always been a great free throw shooter too. And I even feel like he's taken a, a little bit of a step back. Yeah, I, I don't understand it, but I, I applaud Brandon Ingram, and I think, yeah, Devontae Graham is a good name to bring up. It's he made a significant jump, but, I mean, he made a significant jump from being a G League player to a starter in the NBA, whereas, like, mm-hmm. I think Brandon Ingram, you know, making that jump from being a, key, a piece in the rotation to an all-star on in the Western Conference, Yeah, I think that's more more way more impactful and therefore, I think that's why he ends up taking home the award. But I think Gra- Devontae Graham definitely had a case for him. Mm-hmm. I mean, Bam, too. Bam went from being yeah. a, a rotation player to an all-star as well. So I, I think he might have even been a second place in my mind. Uh, same with Sabonis. Sabonis was also yeah. the same way. So a lot, lot of great improvement from a lot of young guys in the league. And it's cool to see Brandon Ingram kind of leading the charge there and I, I hope he can keep it up, man. And it, it, he is kind of the marquee free agent name uh, we're go- talking about going into this offseason. It seems like he might just resign, but he might try to shake things up and, and give us a little bit of splash this this free agency. It's supposed to be pretty boring otherwise, so it might be cool to see if he, uh, he lands somewhere different. Or would you like to see him back in New Orleans? I mean, I think I don't think there's any shot he leaves New Orleans. I mean, I think mm. New Orleans has the ability to give him a bit more money in this yeah. case but yeah it is kind of surprising i mean that's just like the story of brandon ingram where like he was a second pick and it was you know there was there was a lot of debate on whether or not he should be offered an extension at the level that most most rookies at his point at his level get uh and now there's no question he should have gotten that and now he becomes a free agent but i mean i'm sure the pelicans are a little bit scared but i don't think they they truly end up losing this guy so D'Angelo Russell was an all-star two years ago. That was the number two pick of the Lakers. Brandon Ingram yeah. was an all-star last year, number two pick of the Lakers. Lonzo Ball next, question mark? <laughs> Lonzo Ball is an interesting man. I think we're going to get him back somehow. <laughs> I, really? I just, Wait, is that know, a real take right there? 
Ah, I do. I do think we're going to get him back somehow. Why? Like, How? I, Why? <laughs> I don't know. I'm not. There's a. There's one scenario. The scenario is the Pelicans don't offer him an extension that he's eligible for this coming season. So therefore, he becomes a free agent, mm-hmm. and maybe he has another bad year, and he isn't <laughs> quite. You know, he isn't quite. He doesn't quite have the ability to to call for a bunch of money, and Lakers managed to sign him for. A three million, a modest three million dollar deal. <laughs> he rejuvenates his career in L.A. Oh my god! And, and we get the value, the value deal of the year right there. <laughs> and Alonzo is... Ball, who just wants to be back home. You heard it here first, everybody, because <laughs> <laughs> that is not a take anyone else has given right now. <laughs> and if it doesn't work out that way, which is, you know, it's 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 a crazy scenario. It's out there. I think somehow. The roads will lead back to the Lakers for Lonzo somehow. Really? You, you do you want I see that? It. Do you want that, or you just do you really think that that's a plausible timeline? <laughs> I mean, I think he could come back and really make some noise once he's back home. Yeah, I think he's still a solid player. So, do I want that? I mean, sure. I I would take him as my as my <laughs> guard off the bench, or I take him over Caruso and Rondo any day. <laughs> <laughs> hey, we haven't seen Rondo yet this postseason. You don't know. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But uh, you know, moving on there from there to Rookie of the Year, John Moran taking it. Uh, pretty, uh, I guess, like uh, not quite as much. Yeah, quite expected. Not much as noise as I think this probably everybody thought this would have gotten. Um. I don't know. I guess the NBA said that their the bubble wasn't going to take into account for these wasn't going to be taken too heavily into account for these awards, but I mean, I think if you did and John that's where John Morant really sealed it and Zion just, you know, by nature of just not being out there for enough games <laughs> kind of lost it. I guess you could blame Alvin Gentry or Health, I'm not sure, but John oh, Morant both. takes it. Yeah. yeah. And not surprised for my side, I think. No, I think that this is how it should be, and the narrative of Zion being in the running for this after playing like 20 games this year was pretty insane. And we talked about this a lot back in like when Zion was actually playing in the normal regular season, and we're like, man, if Zion can actually lead this team to the playoffs, then we have to consider him as a Rookie of the Year candidate. Well, he got that chance. And boy, did it, that did not work out his way. So this was just such a clear race. Uh, John Morant, man, he, he earned it. I don't think anyone expected the type of season that he had going into it. And we all thought he'd be good. Obviously, number two pick and everything. It's not like he was a Donovan Mitchell sneak up on you type of late lottery yeah. pick. But I don't think anyone really truly knew like how special this kid was. Because obviously pretty unheralded. I went to Murray State. So a very little-known school, and even on his high school team, he wasn't even played very often. So he's always kind of been that underdog, and even coming into this draft, he was the underdog to Zion. And now that he's won Rookie of the Year and claimed that title as the best rookie, I feel like he's kind of coming out of that shadow now of being the underdog, and now he can actually grow into the star, to that top dog, that alpha dog that he's meant to be in this league. So I think that's really cool. Yeah, he's definitely not an underdog. I think most of us, most basketball fans at this point, expect John Morant to be, you know, a top three, if not one of the best point guards in the league at some point. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I definitely could see. I think he'll be right there with Donovan Mitchell and Jamal Murray. These guys are the, the dudes of the future here that we're seeing um, unfold before our eyes. So, no, he's not an underdog. Now it's a matter of him 
being able to live up to these expectations coming out of this year. And I mean, it's a competitive Western conference, so it's tough to say, you know, how far he can take this Memphis Grizzlies team as it still continues to, to develop and grow. Uh, So I don't know if I see playoffs next year. Honestly, (laughs) Like the West is getting even more competitive next year. Uh, But he was right there. The fact that he, this team was able to go toe to toe against the Portland trailblazers and some nail biters there. Uh, was pretty impressive, uh, mm-hmm. and and a lot of it revolved around this rookie John Morant. So, uh, no, he's no underdog. Now he's got the now he's got another burden, and that's called expectations here. So, <laughs> and I think I think he can he can live with it, but we'll see. I mean, I think he'd much rather be living with expectations than what by than being just some role player, you know? Yeah, exactly. Um, so John Morant, you know, rookie of the year, all congrats to him. But now let's dive into the guys who actually came to the party, the playoffs. Mm-hmm. And the first round is is over. It's now over. And again, like I saw this first round and there were some duds in here. But boy, did we get at least two extremely, really just great series that came mm-hmm. down to the wire. And even I didn't really quite see this happening. Uh, Denver really coming back against the Jazz and reinventing themselves here like that Denver team the first three games was completely different from that Denver game those last uh three games even that game in the middle was oh it was kind of okay but those last three games game seven game six and game five Jamal Murray just the star of the show <laughs> and the whole team as a whole just was just completely different Gary Harris just gave him that little extra edge um against Utah to really make some good defensive plays he wasn't shooting very well but it was enough to really get this Denver team over the edge and man that was impressive as heck and I get again like Jamal Murray versus Dominic Mitchell Jamal Murray 31.6 assists in this series what's crazy and just stands out (laughs) by far is like 53% shooting from three for the whole series 55% just from the field for the whole series 92% from the free throw line (laughs) and Donovan Mitchell's just as unreal 36 points five assists 51% from the three-point line, 52% Gosh. from the field, and 95% from the free-throw line. Like, th- this is crazy, man. This is like Shaq numbers. <laughs> so for I mean, yeah, this is, this this is, is like, pri- yeah, this is anybody's prime playoff numbers these two have put up. And on a side note, too, on Donovan Mitchell, he set the record for most threes in a series. More than Steph wow. Curry with 33 in a series. So... Just unbelievable shooting from both ends. The The showdown between Murray and Mitchell was so amazing because it was so competitive, but it was also so wholesome because you know these guys love each other off the court, but they're such fierce competitors, they want to cut each other's throats during the game. <laughs> and that I think that's the perfect rivalry because you don't get any of that bullcrap off the court, but it's all on the court, and they give it 100%. Man, that Game 7 was a thing of beauty. Almost a thing of disgust if you consider how bad both teams were shooting, but I consider it a thing of beauty because you could just tell how bad both of these teams wanted this. The jitters were there, obviously, because you knew the team knows they're going to go home if they lose the game. Denver gets out to a big lead. Utah comes back, claws their way past halftime through the third quarter, and it's a close game the rest of the way. And the scoring totals after each quarter were unbelievable. I think I even texted you during the game, like, they scored 60 points in the third, is the third, end of the third quarter? Like, what is this game? Like, these are dudes that put up 50 points by themselves on any given night. 
it's it was mm-hmm. unreal and then just i think it really epitomized the series so well when they only win by two points and they only win by a couple centimeters of Mike Conley's three going in. That is how close this entire series was. This is how evenly matched these two teams were. And it was just beautiful, honestly. It was like, it couldn't have ended more perfectly. It's like, I didn't even know who I wanted to win. It's like, obviously, as a Clippers fan, I'm like, oh, like, I think Denver's the better team, but the Jazz are playing so well and Donovan Mitchell's crazy. They're so evenly matched. It's like, I just wanted to see. I, I just couldn't believe it. I just didn't even care who won. I just wanted to see what would happen. And they had me on the edge of my seat the whole time. And I was just like screaming that whole last two minutes. I don't even have a stake in either of these teams. But yeah, just the intensity between these two dudes and then just seeing Donovan Mitchell just collapse to the floor at the end, defeated, but then get picked up by Jamal Murray. It was it was amazing, man. Uh, that's just pure basketball competition at its finest. Yeah, I think I'm on that same boat. I mean, we both I think had Denver winning this in six, and mm-hmm. you know, a couple games into it, I was like, okay, Denver just does not look like they want this. I want Utah <laughs> to win this. Like Dominic is yeah. carrying this team because he wanted it more to, than yeah. Yeah, he just want, and then something just clicked in game four game five for this Denver team and they completely just switched gears and Jamal Murray was just not allowed I mean that class that game six and game five performance from Jamal Murray would just go down as classic games I think mm-hmm. like Dominic Mitchell was giving them all the punches he could and Murray was just punching back and harder and and that's <laughs> that's tough and that's that I mean I think that's what we saw when Dominic Mitchell just fell to the ground it's like he fought so hard and put together mm-hmm. A, an unreal stat line for a whole series <laughs> and it wasn't enough like right. and it wasn't enough by just centimeters like you just right. mentioned. <laughs> like it could have just been rudy gobert turning his head a little bit quicker and seeing donovan mitchell mm-hmm. right there wide open oh I man yeah it could have been just one more extra second that conley could have <laughs> had to set his feet a little bit better on that last three or going back to game five you know like a couple turnovers that really gave the game to to denver uh, when Utah could have just sealed the deal there and not let them catch the fire that they did in Game Six, uh, it was just so close. And to see him collapse on there, was, I think as a fan, like I definitely felt it, and I was also mm-hmm. I just felt so bad for Utah. I just didn't <laughs> want the, either of these teams to lose. But you know, at the end yeah. of the day, there is a winner, and and Denver walked away with it. Uh, but I think well fought for all for for both for both teams. Yeah, definitely. I think I think the the man you brought up a little earlier, not named Murray, not named Mitchell, that was the X factor in this series was Gary Harris coming yep. back and and finding his way into playoff basketball because when it first, when he first started out, it's like, yeah, he's pretty rusty. But have just having him and his defensive abilities, like he didn't need to shoot well, like they needed him on defense though, and he was a huge help for them in this series. And def, I think turned the needle for them just enough for them to win this because I think if they don't have him, this is an easy Utah series win. Honestly, it, it came down to that. It's like, and obviously there was injuries on both sides, so it's hard to make excuses one way or another. But yeah, for Utah, not having Bojan Bogdanovich was huge too. So. It, this was just both teams playing as hard as they could. Um, just so respectable on both ends. And now, yeah, in Utah, unfortunately, is just another early playoff exit for them. That's three years in a row now where it's Donovan Mitchell just trying to carry the load, even though it seems like every year they try to get him a little more help, but it's not enough. 
and obviously you got you got Bojan coming back on the contract. Clarkson's going to be a free agent. You'll think they'll resign him because he was really the only bench spark for them this through those last half of the year. Uh, you got Mike Conley on the contract, so the the team's going to be intact. But is it going to be enough to get them out of the first round? Or are they going to need yeah. more? And that's the that's the big question here. Is now Utah is committed to this team. Rudy Gobert's got his contract for a couple of years. Mike Conley still got that enormous deal.